evening to you. First Kings chapter 17 this evening. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. Just get their attention and they'll get one into your hands. And it's always nice to hear the word of God, but also to follow along with your eyes. And uh, that way we get as much out of it as we possibly can. And uh, one of the brothers in the fellowship, you were handed a slip as you came in and uh, that uh, Rich kind of, uh, well, I guess we'll have to put him on staff next. I don't know. But, you know, we're talking about this king and that king and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now we're getting into the prophets and what kingdom are they ministering to and what in which northern or southern kingdom and what kings did they overlap and all. And so this handout allows you to get an idea of. Uh, how they did overlap, whether they were a good king or a bad king, and then the prophets as uh, where they ministered. And all the way over on the right, you can see that there's an arrow toward Elijah, and uh, that's where we find ourselves this evening. Sunday nights uh, through the Bible in uh, chronological uh, order. And Elijah the Tishbite, chapter 17, verse 1, of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, is the Lord God of Israel lives before, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And so as we saw, Ahab is now the king of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time in their history. He is married to a woman by the name of Jezebel. They, there was never a single good king in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel and he and his wife, they were the worst ever. So, as we mentioned, they are evil in a context of evil. So that's really, really deep uh, darkness and, and evil. Not just in some pagan nation in the world, but among God's people, those who were to be God's people. So in the middle of all of this, Elijah pops on the scene, comes out of nowhere. We know nothing about him before he comes onto the scene in chapter 17, verse 1 comes onto the scene and without any fear at all, he put, puts himself before uh, the, the King Ahab and he pronounces a prophecy of drought coming upon the land, uh, which he would have understand to have been because of the wickedness of the land. And so when he speaks in verse one and he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, and as we saw, you believe that about God, it's going to produce a certain quality of, of spiritual life and at the very least a bold life. And then he said, before whom I stand, there will be not dew nor rain these years except at my word. So he pronounces that I have when he talks about the God before whom I stand, I have come from the very presence of God with this message to you, there's going to be a drought upon the land that will last as long as it lasts until I pray to bring it to an end. We know that that's going to ultimately be three, three and a half years. Now, in Israel, they're very dependent upon rain. So here you've got a an arid situation where they're not even not only they're not going to have rain, they're not going to have any dew. So this is when when the word is given that there's not going to be any rain immediately, they take it to the very next thought in their minds in agrarian society. They realize, all right, we're talking about famine, because if we don't get water, we don't raise food, we don't raise food, we don't eat. And so that's the seriousness of what it is that God is a message he's delivering through Elijah there to Ahab now. Part of what uh, Elijah is doing here 
in making this prophecy uh, to Ahab is that he's all the way through. He's going to kind of uh, poke uh, Baal, who they were worshiping, the false god of Baal and the eye all the way through this thing. Baal was the god of nature. Uh, he was the deification of human intellect. But he was supposed to be in control of the weather. So God comes along and says, all right, you don't want to follow me. You don't want to worship me. You don't want to obey me. Then I'm not going to give you the blessings that come with that. And you want to worship Baal and you think he can give you rain. When I say there's not going to be any rain, well, I'm going to show you Baal is nothing. You've traded in the true and the living God for a nothing God. So I'm going to come on and tell you, you're not going to get rain until Elijah prays. And Baal and all of his prophets won't be able to break that uh, prophecy, not one bit, uh, even though he claims to be the God of of the weather and all. And so here he is. They would have understood this, too, to be kind of a confrontation related to the folly of leaving the worship of the true and the living God for Baal, who was powerless before God's call here uh, to bring a drought. Uh, upon the land. So he makes this prophecy. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, get away from here. So he delivers that prophecy. And God says, get away from here. Don't hang out around Ahab at all and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Following this prophecy that Elijah gives to Ahab, it really upsets Ahab. And he is going to send men all the way through the northern kingdom of Israel to try and search out where did Elijah go because he wants to put him to death. He feels he's been disrespected as a king. So uh, and then he's going to send men into all of the surrounding nations in an attempt to find him there to put him to death. And so the Lord knows that that is coming uh, toward Elijah, that kind of persecution. And so he uh, tells him to get away out of the land of Israel, hide by the brook Cherith, which is in crossing over the Jordan River into what we would call modern day Jordan. And again, this is kind of a um, a statement about the apostasy of God's people, that God would have to take one of his prophets and for his safety, remove him from the land of Israel, that he's safer in Jordan than, than uh, or the land of Gilead, Jordan today, than he would be safe among God's people. That's how far they had fallen away from the Lord. And so he told him, listen, this is where I, I want you to go. And that's where I'm going to, to take care of you uh, through the drought and make sure that you have both uh, food and water. It's interesting. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you see things, but I think uh, there's a fair number of us that, you know, we can tend to think we know better, but we can still tend to think that when we're right in the middle of God's will for our lives and uh, we're obeying him, we're being kind of bold for him, delivering the message that God calls us to deliver. We're making a stand for God that um, that's always going to be kind of an easy place to be in life, but it isn't. And sometimes we can get into a place where we're being faithful to God in the ministry that he's called us to. And it can get very, very difficult while in the middle of God's will. And we can't determine whether um, I'm in God's will on the basis solely on the basis of how difficult things get, because he's faithful here and things are going to get harder for him by degrees. So the Lord says it's not safe for you. He knew what Ahab was going to do in trying to hunt him down. 
You go and hide by this brook that flows into the Jordan. It will be that you shall drink from the brook, so it will be a water source to you as drought comes upon the rest of the land. And I have commanded ravens to feed you there. So God is, uh, he's put, he's ends up in a very difficult kind of circumstance. He's running for his life. He's going into a foreign land. Um, and then God tells him, but you'll have water over here from this brook. This is going to be one of the last places that will be immune to the lack of rain in terms of water drying up. And I'm going to arrange for ravens, which was an unclean bird, according to the law of Moses, to bring you food morning and evening. One of the things that God is doing in this is even though things are difficult for Elijah in his ministry at this point in time, God's leaving his fingerprints all over the place. So every morning those ravens show up and they got food in their beaks. Um, and the word food there, it carries the idea of more than just bread. They could be bringing berries and, oh, I mean, just like a fresh fruit buffet. Who knows? But, but they're able to fly into regions very quickly that are unaffected by the drought, bring a wide variety of food to him to sustain him for what is probably at least a year in this condition. And the fascinating thing in the book of Job, when God challenges Job at the end of the book about whether you put me to the test, let me put you to a little bit of a test and see what kind of uh, answers you can have for me for my questions, Job. And one of the things, the questions that he asked uh, Job was about uh, speaking about how the young of the ravens who sustains them, because ravens are, are well known for the fact that they're kind of absent minded. They don't take care of their young. They're not the smartest kind of of a bird. And so here God is not only using a bird to feed him to say, I'm supernaturally taking care of you. Things aren't out of control, but I'm going to use about the dumbest bird on the block to do that and overrule my creation uh, to provide you with food. So uh, sorry if you have a pet raven at home, if we've offended you, been badly wounded. Um, write it in your book. So anyway, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. Uh, and for he went and he stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat uh, in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. So two meals a day. Well, I don't know about that. Just what? So but anyway, apparently you can survive on it when you're not running around. He's probably just hanging out by the brook. And uh, so he had the food and he also drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up. And uh, because there had been no rain in the land. So even this brook, which was an excellent source of water, even it now starts to dry up. And uh, here is Elijah. He's watching this source of water. One thing to read it in, in the Bible, you know, when we can just go over and turn on the faucet and have a shower, drink as much water as we want. It's another thing to be sitting there and watching a brook dry up on you and, and the most powerful Man in the land is looking to take your life, and what are you going to do? And so the Lord is kind of testing him in his faith. One of the things that's happening here is that the Lord isn't just uh, sustaining Elijah with food and water and uh, keeping him alive for a future prophetic ministry. He's also developing Elijah's faith. So God knows what Elijah doesn't know at this moment, and that in three, three and a half years, 
there's going to be a certain showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and the prophets of Baal to demonstrate before the entire nation who is the true and the living God. And Elijah, and so in preparation for that great showdown that's going to come, God is developing Elijah's faith for that time. One of the wonderful things about our God is that he will never allow us to end up in any kind of a circumstance or situation where he hasn't prepared our faith, if we've been obedient to him, to be victorious in that situation. But sometimes the preparation of our faith for some major event that God knows is coming into our future, but we don't know yet, sometimes that preparation can be very, very difficult. But I always have to remind myself at that time that there is something more difficult than God's preparation, and that is to end up in that situation one day unprepared, lacking the kind of faith and relationship I need with God to be successful. And so God works hard to make sure that we're not in that kind of place. And so he is developing Elijah's faith. And so he's fed. The brook is drying up. And so, you know, he's waiting around. How am I going to be fed and, uh, and, and given water for the rest of this drought? And then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. And dwell there. See, I have commanded a woman there to provide for you. So the Lord instructs him to leave that area of modern day Jordan and to go to Zarephath, where he's going to be sustained by a Gentile woman, which would have been very, very humbling to a Jewish uh, 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 prophet. And so he goes to Zarephath, which was a journey of about 80 to 90 miles and Zarephath is in what we would uh, between located between Tyre and Sidon up in what we would call Lebanon today, which is where Jezebel came from. And so what the Lord does is he takes Elijah, takes him into and hides him in Jezebel's kind of hometown area. The figures Ahab will never look for uh, Elijah there never believed that Elijah would go to the very stronghold of Baal and uh, and hide there. Uh, but that's exactly what God does. I think that God has a sense of humor sometimes as I read the Bible. So, again, it's kind of a uh, an expose of the powerlessness of Baal. God is going to take his prophet, put him right in the stronghold of Baal, and Baal can't seem to tell anybody where God's prophet is, even in the place where his reception is the strongest for getting a a word from, uh, from Baal. So the Lord hides him right in Baal's backyard and then uh, had him fed there. And uh, again, the Lord developing his his faith. So I've commanded, he said, a widow who's going to provide for you. Now, that's kind of a anytime you had a famine in those days um, up there in the area of Sidon and uh, Tyre. Remember when uh, uh, Solomon was building the temple and he was building his palace and he sent word to the king of Tyre and he said, boy, you guys know how to work stone. Uh, you're good stonemasons. You've got all of those cedars, all that wood up there. Would you enter into a negotiation to send us the kind of materials that we need to build the temple and also 
for the expertise to build something beautiful. And the king of Tyre said, absolutely, I'll be glad to do that for you in exchange for food. So if Israel is out of food and Israel is hungry, then Tyre was out of food in in an even more desperate uh, condition than the northern kingdom of Israel was because Israel kind of kept that area fed. So for God to send him into an area that's harder hit by the famine than even Israel is, and then to tell him that he's going to be fed by a widow who which would have been on the bottom rung of surviving any kind of a, of a famine, uh, you know, again, testing his faith that this was how God was going to uh, sustain him. And so in his obedience, he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her. He seems to recognize that this is the woman. And he said to her, please bring me a, a, a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he then made a further request. So he figures, all right, she's going to go get me some water. I asked for it. I'm on a roll. Let's ask for some grub. So. He said to her further, please bring me a morsel of bread uh, in your hand. And so she then said, as the Lord, your God lives. So she doesn't claim uh, Jehovah to be her God. She recognizes Elijah to be a prophet of God. Apparently, the word was out on the street that this famine was caused by Jehovah, by the God of the Bible, the God of Elijah. And, and so the, the, there was that recognition, this is a showdown between these, a true God and a false God. And so she recognizes, hey, your God is alive. He has stopped the rain. As the Lord your God lives, I don't, I don't have bread. I, I can't go make you a loaf of bread or even a bun or a roll or anything. I only have a handful of flour uh, in a bin, I've got a little oil in a jar. I'm just gathering up a couple of sticks so I can go in, prepare a little fire, put some oil and and uh, and put the flour together, make some kind of a uh, of a pancake kind of, of thing, prepare it for myself and my son. It's the last that we've got. We're going to eat it. And then following that, we're prepared to starve to death as a result of of this drought. And so this is the the response that uh, she gives uh, to him as a result of uh, of his request. Now, he requests food of her and you think, "Why? what kind of a guy is this as it shows up and and uh, asks for food? Well, remember, the Lord had told him that he was going to be supplied by a widow woman there in in the city. And so he has that word from from God. And so he asks her uh, for that. Interesting what's going on here, because the Lord is not only developing Elijah's faith. Have you ever noticed God's doing about 10 things all at once? And I notice about half of one that he's doing. And then a little bit later, you realize he was knocking all kinds of things out at the same time. Well, that's what he's doing here. So he's developing Elijah's faith. But he knows there's a widow woman who who if she has an encounter with a true and the living God, she's going to become a believer in this God. And so he sends him over there now to be supplied by her through supernatural means that God is going to use uh, uh, through through Elijah. 
And because he's out there fishing, he's wanting to draw people to him, to know him, have a relationship with him. So he's working a lot of things out all at the same time. We don't have to know everything that God is doing through our lives. All we have to do is just be obedient to what he tells us to do next. And then it's amazing how we can find out months later, years later, wow, you did this thing over here, and then this happened and that happened, and this thing came about over here, and we didn't even know that it was happening. God's doing a lot of stuff. And so he wants to reach this woman. He does not want her and her son to die in this famine, and he wants to bring her into an understanding uh, of him. So that's what he's up to. And so... I mean, it would be kind of amusing as the woman says to him here, listen, we've got a little bit of oil in a jar, got some flour, I got just picking up some sticks, heat it up, we're going to eat and then we're going to go die. Elijah has to be thinking, Lord, come in, Lord, come in, Lord. Do I have the right widow woman here in Seraphat? This lady's ready to die. She doesn't have enough faith for her and her family. And you say, you're going to feed me? For the remainder of this drought related uh, to her. And so Elijah said to her, don't don't fear. She's afraid of death and go and do as you have said. Go ahead and go go get that your sticks and, and make that little pancake. But I but make me a small cake from it first, then bring it to me and then afterwards make some for yourself and your son. So he gives her a test here. I've heard this this passage preached over and over again by people trying to rob widows of money on television. I just hate it. Uh, and I always think to myself, you're not Elijah. You know, but anyway, um, <laughs> enough about my problems. So it's, it's not giving a Christian minister so-called permission to fleece. Uh, the most desperate and, and vulnerable people in the population. God's really at work here in this situation. And, and so God wants to supply her need, but he wants her to take a step of faith here related to this. And she's not going to know, uh, she's not going to discover this blessing that's going, about to unfold until uh, she's willing to kind of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then see all these other things added to her. And so he gives the promise, said, don't be afraid. You go make a little something for me, and then you're going to discover that there's enough left over for your son and you to eat as well. And then there's a further promise, verse 14, for Here's the reason he's going to give her a word from the Lord, a promise from God to base her actions on upon right here. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. That's the highest source you can get for a promise. The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So he makes the promise. You go and you do this. Express your faith in God and in, in, in taking this step. And you're going to have oil and you're going to have food, not only for you and your son, but for your family for the remainder of of this entire uh, famine. And uh, this is exactly what is going to happen. And uh, so uh, until the time that the drought is over, she went away. She did according to the word of Elijah and she and her household ate 
for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So God supplied for this household, not just her son and her, but we're told her whole family here uh, becomes a part of this, supplied all the way through the drought. Now, how he did that must have been very interesting. So there she makes a little breakfast, you know, and uh, put the lid on the oil, put the lid on the grain, you know, come back at dinner time, open it up and see if it's, you know, and it's all been replenished. I mean, two times a day, it was like Christmas for a six-year-old. God just resupplying this supernaturally for the, the years of, uh, of the drought did it exactly as he had spoken the word by Elijah. Now, it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house, he became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. And so the widow's son uh, died. And so she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And so it's interesting now as her son dies, the first thing that comes into her mind is it must be because of some sin I've done in my past. And that and that is that's a very common idea that people have when some kind of hardship or disaster occurs in, someone, in, in our lives is to think, okay, what have I done? God must be, you know, really hammering me here uh, as a result of some sin in my past. And it isn't true. I like what the Lord um, Jesus he in, spoke in one of the Gospels. He, he spoke about how the Father, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's just a fallen world. People die. Everybody's going to die. Barring the rapture. Most of us are going to get sick before we die. No matter how much faith you have, most of us are going to die by the the last thing we get sick of. That's just the way that it is. We're going to have trials. We're going to have difficulties. And so often it is with Christians, though, that some gigantic thing happens. And I'm not minimizing how serious it is. And their entire world is, is absolutely torn apart. Their faith is just shaken to a very dangerous place. And, and sometimes I'll talk with that person, or certainly always think in these terms, and I just say, what in the world are your expectations, even as a Christian in this fallen world, that we get put in a bubble and, and that we don't face what everybody else faces in the fallen world? We really do. But that tendency is when these things come and to look at it and instead of looking and saying, hey, this is a fallen place. I mean, stuff happens here. Bad stuff happens here. It happens to the just. It happens to the unjust. It's the way that it is. One day it won't be that way. But it's that way now until we get into heaven or we're raptured uh, up into heaven. And certainly not to take difficulties that arise and immediately think, oh, there mu- I must be displeasing God. There must be some past sin in my life that now he's you know, bringing up and he's putting in front of me and, and he's going to make me pay for what I did before I came to know Christ or even after. And it's a, ten- it's, it's a temptation and a tendency. And, it, and it's not the case in this situation. And it isn't the case in how God works 
uh, in our lives in Christ Jesus, which is a far superior uh, covenant. So she says, why, why you've come in, you're a holy man. You come close to me, close to my son. There's sin in my past. You knew it. And now your holiness and the holiness of your God has killed my son. And so Elijah said to her, give me your son. And so he took him out of her arms and he carried him into an upper room where he was staying and he laid the boy out on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow uh, with whom I lodged by killing her son? And the key word in that verse is the word also. Basically, he's saying, Lord, I know that you have brought judgment on Israel because of their sin. Is the death of the boy also an expression of your judgment uh, due to sin for some reason? That's what he's asking about. Is this about sin, Lord? And then he stretched himself out on the child. The child's laying on the bed. He puts himself, lays right out on, on the child three times. So often through the scriptures, even in the New Testament, we talk about and when, when God uh, performs a healing or a miracle, so often someone will take and they'll lay hands on somebody. And so if we're going to pray for somebody for healing in the New Testament, we anoint them with oil. The elders lay hands on them, uh, pray the prayer of faith. And the idea is this demonstration that God is going to do this miracle. He's going to do this work in a person's life uh, through this person. It's God that's at work. So here is a situation that is um, way bigger than any disease. The boy is dead. What's needed is a resurrection. So he doesn't lay hands on his forehead or on his shoulder. He says, this needs a big touch from God. And so he lays down on the boy and he does so three times, crying out to the Lord, praying, oh, Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And so this perseverance and prayer, he asks over and over again. Sometimes people feel that. Um, if you ask God more than one time for something, it's unspiritual. Jesus commended uh, perseverance in prayer. We should we should pray until we see an answer to our prayer or until we sense God has given us a release from continuing to pray that perseverance in prayer, asking the same things over and over again is not a lack of faith by any uh, any means. Old Testament, New Testament. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the, the soul of the child came back to him. And he was revived, raised from the dead. And Elijah then took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house, gave him to his mother. And Elijah says, see, your son lives. It's got a little exclamation point after lives in my Bible. But that was pretty exciting news. And listen to the woman's response. This, she's something. And the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Now I believe you're a prophet because you uh, and a prophet of the Lord, because you have raised my son up from the dead. And Elijah's got to be thinking to himself, hey, 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 hey. What's this whole oil and flour thing every day? It fills up. I mean, is that chopped liver to you? Does that mean nothing to your faith? And God and my credentials is a is a prophet. So apparently, I mean, she was still suspicious at that point. 
This clinches the deal. It says, now I know that you're a man of God and the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Uh, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. And so that great light goes on for her and her confession concerning uh, concerning Elijah. Chapter 18. And it come to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year of the drought, saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. And so the Lord uh, speaks to him now and says, all right, I'm going to break this uh, this drought. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go see Ahab face to face once again. It had been three years since they'd seen each other face to face. And uh, and I, and then and, and then take them uh, with him the message that uh, I am going to send rain uh, on the earth. And so uh, here your God, uh, Baal, has had three years to do something about the weather. So you're all going to die if I don't step in, if you keep believing in Baal. So we gave him plenty of time uh, to uh, to send rain. And so God steps in. And so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab uh, had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house or uh, kind of the master of his house, uh, it called him for a project that he wanted to do. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So this is interesting. You've got a very, very wicked man who makes a um, the head of his household over his whole his wealth, his uh, uh, the fulfillment of his his desires and his commands and all, he uses a man who greatly feared the Lord. Isn't it funny how even wicked men want righteous men uh, to keep their books? Even wicked men and women want good people, moral people, righteous people to teach their children. It's, it's a confession in, in life. So here he is. He, 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 he's, he's got all he, wickedness has just permeated the land. It's affected the quality of the people. What we believe determines what kind of a person we are. Jesus said wisdom is justified by her children. So now he's got problem finding good help in the palace. And the only good help he can find are those that are still following the Lord. I remember one time. I went to um, a hospital here in town to visit a very elderly Christian woman, very, very godly, and had walked with the Lord just decades and decades and decades. I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. She was very, very elderly and, and knew the Lord deeply and loved Him. And as I went into the room, she's just got this kind of a terrified look, you know, on her. And, and she's um, in her one thing, the one request that she wanted is she, she said, don't let the Hindus treat me here. Don't let the Hindus treat me here. She she did not want a Hindu nurse to be treating her. And I thought to myself, obviously, highly politically incorrect. But if I'm in that kind of a place and my life is on the line and somebody is treating me, I want someone from a religion that values life 
And so here is this. She recognized that a religion fashions how we see everything in life. I don't want a Hindu nurse. I want a Christian nurse. I thought to myself, I get exactly what you're saying. I won't tell you where we went with all that. But this is the same same kind of thing here. So it was while Jezebel for so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord uh, Jehovah up in the northern kingdom of Israel. Apparently not everyone was apostate. There were still uh, prophets that were up there that were faithful to the Lord. One of the first things she did was come in and uh, massacre them in order to silence their voice for the Lord. And, and so while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 of them, hidden them 50 in a cave, and he had fed them with bread and water. Pretty big thing. He's got to get in the middle of a drought. He's got to get bread and water to keep 100 guys alive who are prophets of the true and the living God alive in two caves in a drought. He doesn't know how long it's going to last. So his, he put his life in danger to do this. And so Ahab said to Obadiah, listen, we need to go out into the land to all of the springs of of water and all of the brooks, and perhaps we can find some uh, brook or, or spring of water where some grass is still growing to keep the horses and the mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. He wants to keep these animals alive. They had a military value. And so they divided the land between them to explore, and Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went the other way by himself. Now, as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly, there's a, there's a, maybe that was, we could call Elijah sudden. He's, he came places suddenly. Suddenly, Elijah met him, and, and Obadiah recognized him as Elijah, and he fell on his face, and he said, Is that you, my Lord Elijah? Elijah answered him and said, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. Huh? It's a Western, doesn't it? Tell them Elijah is here. And so Obadiah said to him, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? You tell me to go and tell them that you're in the land and all is going to result in my death. As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he's not here, he made him take an oath from the kingdom or the nation that they couldn't find you. I mean, he's been beating the bushes for you for three and a half years. And now you say, go to your master, uh, 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 go tell your master, Elijah is here. It's going to come to pass as soon as I'm gone. The Spirit of the Lord going to carry you someplace? I don't know. You've got a reputation out there. You know, the, the, Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3. The wind listeth where it will. It blows where it, 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 it wants to. And so the Holy Spirit works. He says, you're going to send me to tell Ahab that you're here. And I know that the Holy Spirit's just going to take you someplace else. And it's going to look like... I tried to uh, do a dumb joke on Ahab, and he's in no mood for these kind of jokes. Elijah, he's going to take my head off for it. He's going to kill me if, if uh, he can't find you. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Listen, you're, you're going to get a good man killed here by, by making me deliver this report. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel 
killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave and fed them with bread and water. Listen, my life is already in jeopardy without doing this. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. He will kill me. He's got a short fuse concerning you, Elijah. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. That's the reassurance he needed. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and he told him and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it happened when Elijah saw or Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Come here, come here, come here, come here. Why are you on Isn't it funny? I mean, here is the the unrighteous make a mess of everything in their unrighteousness. And and then they blame all of the consequences of their wickedness uh, on the fact that there are too many righteous people. She's going to blame Elijah for the drought and all of the problems. Maybe he's. Maybe what he's saying to Elijah is, listen, what you've done now is you've offended Baal. And so because you're such an offense to Baal, he's not given us rain in the north. He could be tweaked around a little bit in terms of of how he's seeing things. But he he makes the righteous uh, blames the righteous for uh, the problems of the nation when the problem wasn't in the nation wasn't that there were too many righteous people. There were too many unrighteous people. And, and so Elijah answered and, and is going to correct this revisionist history. And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. And so he gets things turned around and reminds him, uh, setting the record straight. And now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so here is a proposed test now that Elijah gives to Ahab. The nation is uh, worshiping Baal, but they should be worshiping Jehovah. And so what uh, 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 Elijah does is say, all right, go bring all of your prophets, bring the, the from Asherah, the, the goddess Asherah, uh, all of the prophets of Baal, bring them and meet me on Mount Carmel and we'll have a showdown over whether Baal or Jehovah is the true and the living God. Now, Mount Carmel is a not really a single mountain uh, high peak in the north of Israel. It's about a 12 mile mountain range that runs from about Haifa down toward the Mediterranean. And there's one particularly high point that's a plateau, which is probably where this particular event took place. And we always visit it on a on a trip to Israel. So that's what he's calling him to do now. Bring uh, the 450 prophets of Baal and uh, and then the 400 prophets of Asherah, who was the consort or kind of the wife of Baal, uh, who eat at Jezebel's table supplied by Jezebel. Now, what's interesting here is that Ahab is going to bring the 450 prophets of Baal, but Jezebel is not going to release the 400 prophets of Asherah. Um, we don't really know why. Maybe she know, maybe she doesn't want to bet that hand, uh, doesn't want to bet her profits on what's going to happen there. She may have a suspicion. I don't know. 
but they all stay home and they were kind of under her control. And so Ahab sent for all of the children of Israel, gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all of the people and he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. And so here's the challenge that Elijah makes to the people. This is he's going to have this confrontation, the showdown. Before uh, against the prophets of Baal, but he's not looking to convert them necessarily. He's looking to make a point to the nation of Israel that you are following the wrong God in your idolatry. So he begins to talk to them and he challenges the people uh, there in verse 21 concerning halting between two opinions. And uh, uh, the uh, word halt is in the King James and the New King James. It talks about faltering between uh, two opinions. And that literally means to waver between two opinions or to be lame between two opinions. And so they were standing between two opinions. Opinion number one, Jehovah is God. Opinion number two, Baal is uh, God. And so uh, the, the Elijah is saying to them, that is a lame position to hold in life. When you have a person who is physically lame, um, they have difficulty because of the lameness of their foot or the lameness of their leg. They have difficulty making uh, progress in in life. And so what is true of a person on a physical level that a lameness uh, hinders us from progressing forward in life down a path is is. Um, uh, healthily and as fast and as aggressively as we ought to go down it. The same thing is true spiritually. A person can be spiritually lame where they are not, uh, they haven't settled the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life. They don't follow him 100%. They, they worship him over here a little bit, but they then worship the gods that people worship in the world. It's the old saying where you've got some Christians who are absolutely miserable because they've got too much of the world to be comfortable in church, but they've got too much of the church to be comfortable in the world. It's an absolutely miserable place to be in. And that's where these people were. They're trying to worship two gods, two entities. One is a false and non-existent God. One is a true and living God, but they're mutually exclusive. So because they were trying to worship both at the same time and both of these gods are about entirely different things, they couldn't become great for either one. They couldn't do anything for either one. They're just wasting their lives in this middle ground. So he calls on them to basically make up your mind. If Baal is God, then get behind him 100%, jettison the worship of Jehovah, forget about him, and go be great for Baal. But if Jehovah is God, then forget this nonsense of Baal and wasting your life where you're not making a difference for the Lord at all in life and go 100% for the Lord. But this thing that you're doing in the middle is just a sure way to waste your life and not do anything great for anyone or anything in life. And so that's the challenge that he's he's offering to them to kind of be in this place where kind of worshiping this kind of worshiping that it's a lame way to live, not only physically, but a lame way to live 
spiritually. And so this is his charge to them. Well, the people, they're listening, but they don't really respond to what he's saying, but they understand the challenge. And then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left uh, a prophet of the Lord. So it's just me. And uh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And so there he is, just one prophet of the Lord, 450. You see these other prophets and their little outfits and everything. And so pretty badly outnumbered there. And so this is the proposal that he made. He said, therefore, let me uh, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves Let the prophets of Baal. I'll give them first choice. They can pull, take the first bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on wood, put no fire on it. And then you can call on the name of your gods. I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And so the people, they answered and they said, this is uh, well spoken. Now, this pr- uh, proposition that uh, Elijah gives to the prophets of Baal had just absolutely excite them because what he has proposed here uh, is a test played into all of the supposed strengths uh, of, of Baal. Baal was supposed to be the god of weather, so it should have been effortless for him to consume with lightning or with fire any sacrifice that was put out in this kind of, of, of a test. And, and so this was the uh, uh, they thought, wow, this is fabulous. They, this is playing right into the power and the strength uh, of, of our God. Now, the drought had uh, proven to be a great embarrassment to Baal and to his his followers. And since he was evidently here is Elijah as he's exposing Baal again, since he's evidently no good at rain, uh, Elijah gives Baal a chance to redeem himself in the opposite way by sending fire or lightning. And so uh, the other thing that had to excite the prophets of Baal is that Mount Carmel had become a center for the worship of Baal. It was this was a this was kind of the place that he was worshipped. This is where this was, you know, familiar ground for Baal. And then uh, finally, Baal's cult animal, the, the animal that represented Baal in the ancient world was a bull. And it symbolized Baal's fertility and his strength and all of these things. And so when they listen to this proposal, they think, wow, Elijah is toast. Our God is going to just cook him in, in this showdown. So all of the people are excited about it. The prophets are, of Baal are excited about it. And Elijah, he's a gentleman. Verse 25, he said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself. I'll give you first choice. You don't complain later when it uh, doesn't work out well for you. You prepare the bull and uh, for your many and then call on the name of your God, but don't put any fire under it. And so they took the bull that was given them. They prepared it, cut it up in pieces, put it on the wood, and they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, several hours. And here's what they were crying out to Baal. Oh, Baal, hear us. And so this is what they chanted over and over again in prayer to Baal for several hours. But there was no voice. No one answered. Now, the interesting thing is Baal doesn't exist. Uh, he's, a, he's a figment of their imagination. Now, the devil can come in and he can give a supernat. He can come in behind any religious system and accomplish supernatural from him as a source. 
to look like there's a real God behind these systems. But he's the God behind these other religious systems. And so God did not give the devil freedom in this situation to come on the scene and deceive the people related to Baal. So he's, he's being thoroughly exposed. So there was no answer to the prayer. And so they want to arouse Baal to, to uh, action. And so they begin then to leap about the altar which they had made. So some kind of ritual dance going on. And so it was that at noon, after they'd done this for several hours, that Elijah began to mock them. Now, here's a lot. Here's all. He doesn't answer by fire. It's noon. It's the hottest. It's the hottest time of the day. I mean, if your God can't do it in the heat of the day and he's in charge of the weather, we've got problems here. And so he began to mock them, sanctified uh, mocking. And he said, cry aloud. And just where he's standing over by the side and say, you've got to get you've got to cry out louder, this God of yours, because he really is a God. So he encourages them, don't be discouraged at the silence of, uh, of your God. And uh, he's going to provide them with some explanations for maybe why Baal uh, hadn't uh, uh, shown up yet. Uh, maybe he's meditating. Caught him at a bad time. He's having his quiet time. And. Uh, or he's busy, and literally in the Hebrew it means he's relieving himself. He's in the bathroom. Uh, these, these were tough guys in the Old Testament. So maybe he's busy, you've caught him at a bad time, or he's on a journey. So you, you're, he's outside of the calling area, and uh, you just, you've got to update your plan. Or perhaps he's sleeping, and he needs to be awakened. So he begins to speak to them in this way. And um, so... They bite related to this and they begin to cry aloud. They cut themselves, uh, as was their custom, with knives and with lances. And, and they, now they add their blood gushing out of them onto the blood uh, of the, the sacrifices. This goes on for a, a, about three hours. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. And there was no voice, no one answered. No one paid attention. No, no, no. And so then Elijah said to all of the people, he said, come near to me. For, and so all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. So apparently it was a site of ancient worship of the Lord. And he took 12 stones from that broken down altar, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order on the bottom. He cut a bull in pieces, laid it on top of the wood. And then he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And so uh, they did it. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time so that the water ran all around the altar. And he was uh, also and, and he also filled the trench with water. So the, the sacrifice is soaking wet. The ground is soaking wet. The wood is so, soaking wet. Now, this is a guy who is pretty confident in his God. These are the actions of that, that kind of a guy that really knows his God, what his God is able to do. 
And, and so all of this is happening. He does not. He knows God's going to answer by fire. And he doesn't want them thinking that this is a case of spontaneous combustion. You ever read about that once in a while? Like Ripley's Believe It or Not, they don't probably do that anymore. But you read something where somebody's like sitting on an overstuffed chair and then somebody comes over to see him the next day and they just went up and smoke. You know, right there, it just caught fire themselves, their own body. You probably never worried about that until, <laughs> until just now. So, so it can happen. So he's removing even that as a is an accusation that could be made. So there's water all over the place. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. And here's the prayer that he lifted up to the Lord. He said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob or Israel, let it be known this day. This is what this is all about, Lord, that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word, hear me, O Lord, hear me that these people may know that you are the Lord God and that that you have turned their backs to you again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the entire burnt sacrifice, the animal itself, all of the wood, all of the stones. Now, that's some fire. It consumed stones and all of the dust. It licked up all of the excess water that was in the trench. And the response of the people to this is that they when they all saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the the Lord, he is God, which is the point that God wanted to make through the miracle. And Elijah then said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought the 450 of them down to the brook Kishon uh, there in that same area and executed them there. Under the law of Moses, it was a capital crime to draw God's people away from the worship of the true and the living God and into idolatry. God had warned them fair and square. Don't do that. Don't steal my children from me. Don't kidnap them from me. Don't do that to take them to worship something else, because this is the judgment if you do that. And so Elijah here, when he executes them, they're being executed for committing a capital crime according to the law of Moses. The Bible says in the New Testament, be not many masters or teachers because you're going to face the harsher judgment. And this is the kind of, of harsh judgment. Now, this miracle, as we introduce the Lord's Supper, we'll stop there tonight and pick it up next time in verse 41.